Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Ape Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. We are once again speaking with Sandra Hindman, who runs Les Illumineurs, a business dedicated to selling manuscripts and miniatures from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. We spoke to Sandra about a year ago and learned about her unique business. Today, Sandra is going to help us learn about books of hours. So, a book of hours is a, is a book containing prayers, psalms, and other religious texts to basically help its owner be devotional throughout the day. They were popular in the Middle Ages. Being handwritten, they are referred to as manuscripts. Many were illuminated with illustrations and decorations. So when we're talking about reading and book production before the invention of the Gutenberg Press, we have to consider the impact of books of hours. They were the best sellers of the Middle Ages. But let's hear from a real expert. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be back and talk to you again. Um, I think one of the, uh, you know, very first things that... uh, as I was listening to your excellent introduction, that occurs to me is um, the, the name Book of Hours. Because I think most people think, what does it mean, a Book of Hours? That's hours as in hours of the day, not hours as in yours and mine. So the, it is a book that arranges the text and pictures according to the monastic day, so according to the eight hours during which the monks would have said their office and prayers. But they're not for monks. They're for everyone. So it would help me uh, decide which prayer to say at breakfast and perhaps before I went to bed at night. Is that correct? It would be, but it's not quite like that. Um they are uh they start with calendar so that is also a temporal element so it would tell you on the very first page you'd see january and it would tell you what all the saints were for each day of the month so um you could look at it that way and then you would get to the sort of beginning of it which were the hours of the virgin and you, it would start with um, matins, and matins is actually, although it sounds like it would be in the morning, like mat, mat, matinal, it's actually, matins is actually around midnight. Um, so every three hours, you could open your book, and you could really say a prayer or most likely look at the pictures. So um, what would be some of the other things that you would find in a typical book of hours? So yes, you'd have this calendar with all the saints and often with pictures. The calendars are great when they're uh, illustrated. They have the signs of the zodiac, just like you pick up a newspaper now and you see your little, you know, the little cancer sign or the little Scorpio sign. So you'd have those signs painted for each month, and then you'd have what are called the labors of the month. So those are activities, um, and you would 
open it in January and you'd see a feasting. And in February, you'd see people warming themselves by a fire because it's cold out, et cetera, et cetera. So you'd find the calendar. You'd find this section that I said was the hours of the Virgin because they are really um, devoted to Mary, to um, the iconography of the Virgin Mary, um, who's so important in Gothic cathedrals. You might think of them as little little cathedrals of prayer. And you would find psalms, the seven penitential psalms. So psalms you would say in penance. And you would find something called an office of the dead. So if a friend of yours died and you went to their funeral, you'd take your book and you could follow along with the funeral service. And then they would have lots of miscellaneous prayers where, you know, you could pray to Margaret, um, especially if you wanted to ensure a uh, happy birth, Margaret, who's patron saint of childbirth, or you could pray to St. Apollonia if you had really bad teeth because she's the patron saint of teeth. And um, there were plague saints and uh, saints that protected you. So it would also include prayers to um, individual saints. Now, So that's sort of the content, um, textually, anyway. So I mentioned in my intro about the Middle Ages. So where and when did they originate? Well, let's start with the Middle Ages, because I always remember like a David Letterman program years ago where he said the Middle Ages is the 16th century. And it's wrong. The Middle Ages is from about 300, which is Constantine and the conversion to Christianity, to about 1500 or 1550. Now, books of ours originate in the later Middle Ages. They grow out of a text called the Psalter, which is just the Psalms of the Bible that were said in monasteries and also um, by private people. And they, they begin in the 13th century, about 1250, and they continue well past Gutenberg, maybe to about 1550. So that's the period 13th, 14th, 15th, and early 16th century, from which you would find books of ours. And the countries? Um, would it be in yeah. France, the, where they started? You know, France is really the epicenter, as it were, of books of ours. Um, they start in sort of northern France, Belgium, the North French border. Um, and uh, I, I don't know the percentage, but let's guess and say uh, maybe 80, 75 or 80 percent of all books of ours are probably, originate probably in France, not just Paris, all different centers in France. But there are books of ours from Italy. There are books of ours from England and Belgium and the Netherlands. Um, there aren't many books of ours from Germany. Instead, there are something called prayer books, which are miscellaneous prayers, not quite organized the same way a book of ours is. So those are really the and Spain too. Those are really the countries. But yes, France is extremely important for books of ours. 
So what was, um, what was the involvement of the church, if any? Did the church regulate them at all? Not at all. Um, they are not liturgical books. They, we might call them paraliturgical. They are books for people to say at home, um, prayers for them to say at home. The only church intervention happens, um, it's not even church intervention, the only real intervention happens under Henry VIII with um, English books of ours where um, he uh, forbids, um, with the Reformation, he forbids certain indulgences, the prayer to Thomas Beckett, um, papist language, as it were, but they are not regulated by the church. Okay. Now, I mentioned a word, illumination. Uh, it's a lovely word, and it seems quite fitting. And when I look at the pictures of the, the really famous examples, the blues and the golds seem so vivid and just jump off the page. So can you describe the illumination process for us? Well, illumination, of course, means that they light up, that they're, they are bright with color, which indeed they are. And you have just mentioned, of course, the two um, most important colors. By the way, um, medieval contracts for books of ours specify how much blue and how much gold are going to be used in the book because they are the most expensive of the pigments. The blue comes from, uh, is lapis lazuli and comes all the way from Afghanistan. And the gold is, of course, beaten gold. It's real gold in leaf form. But you would, you would, um, and the other pigments are all natural. I mean, they are earth and mineral, malachite for green. There are, you know, um, red tones from earth. Saffron is sometimes used for yellow, yellow is orange. And, and they're on parchment, by the way. Um, so parchment is an animal skin. Most of them are on parchment, some are on paper. So you would take this animal skin and to illuminate the book, you would prepare the ground a little like you would do a fresco painting with um, egg white that would dry. And then you would apply, you meaning the illuminator, the artist, would apply in um, areas the color. You always put the gold down first because the gold is burnished, that is polished, literally, often with the tooth of a dog or a wolf. And because you rub it with this tooth, you um, would be rubbing other areas of the page where there's pigment. So better to have the gold and then blank surface so that you can polish the gold as highly as you can. And you know, if you put a book of hours in, the, in natural light, and um, or even in artificial light, the blue, you can see the crystals of the lapis lazuli in the blue. It's really incredible. And you did that, and you did this also, oh, I, I should mention this too. The pigment, it's then you you make it by boiling these colors individually, of course, with either bits of parchment, or bits of like fish bones 
because what you want, parchment is an animal skin. So it expands and contracts. Anyone who lives in a climate like Chicago, where I partly do, know that it's like extremely dry in the winter. And so um, your, your parchment can crinkle up and then it's very humid in the summer and the parchment like releases itself. And that's bad for the pigment. But in Books of Hours, they were very clever um, because the this sizing, as it were, that you put in the pigment, um, the pigment then expands and contracts with the parchment. So um, they're ex- in extraordinary condition often because, you know, the pigment doesn't flake off. It um, expands and contracts as the animal skin does. They're very beautiful. So if I was a wealthy person, I could order a book of hours that was customized to the, the things I loved, the saints I loved, the scenes from the Bible, Bible I loved. Is that correct? Absolutely. But what's also correct, I, I like to compare it with fashion. I mean, there are off-the-shelf books of hours. You could, like, walk down the street and um, in a shop window see three or four books of hours in Paris and say, I'll take that one. Or you could walk down the street and, you know, ring the special bell of the master um, bookseller and say, you know, I have this much money and I want this book of hours for my daughter, for her dowry and I want it to have her name in it and her family arms and I want she likes these saints and and you could pick how many pictures you could pick you could personalize the text too there are cases where the name of the person is even written into the text so clearly the scribe got um special instructions so you know there's there there's a wide, wide range now, but there must have been a wide range then of standard books of hours and then highly, highly individualized and more expensive books of hours. So just like certain designers, there is a status symbol element to them, fashion designers. Was that the same with book of hours? Oh, I'm sure if you had a book of hours and an incredible binding with, you know, many, many, many pictures, I'm sure it was a status symbol. There's that famous story of the Limburg brothers who, knowing the Duke of Berry's taste for um, books of hours, I can't remember, I think he had 18 or 20 books of hours, um, they for for his for New Year's Day, which was the day you exchanged presents, they made him a fake book of hours. So they made him a book that didn't open. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think that suggests something about the status. And look at the Duke of Berry's book of hours, the Trerichure. I mean, everyone has probably seen pictures of the Trerichure. With uh, opens with January with the Duke sitting in all his regalia with all of his presents and his gold and his silver and his dogs and his tapestries at a feast table. Um, yes, for sure they were status symbols, but you know they were also like like the kind of early American family Bible. 
because you you might have a very simple book of hours. I once had a an incredible book of hours made for the um, the master of the jewels. He he recorded all of the um, items and fill in the Duke of Burgundy's inventory, and he he had a book of hours that. Um, he used as his as a sort of we call it livre de famille, a family book. So in it are the birth dates of all of his children, the baptism dates, the identity of their godparents, the marriage dates. So you use them to record family history too. Sometimes when I listen to you speak, I start thinking they sound a little like a file of facts. A filofax, yeah, like, you know, there's so many different names. You, yeah, you know, you might even put... Personal organizer. Um, yeah, yeah, and you might even you might even put, like, the obits, um, uh, like the death dates of friends of yours in the calendar. Right. Now, you uh, buy and sell um, books of ours, among other things. Uh, it's amazing that they are still around hundreds of years later and that they seem so robust. So was that the material? I mean, yes, partly. I mean, first of all, they were treasured objects so um, pa- that were passed down from generation to generation, um, and that surely accounts partly for their longevity. Uh, and the part, parchment is very durable. I mean, it's much, much more durable than paper. Um, so the parchment and, again, precious metals are durable, too. But also, yes, there are lots of books of ours. I mean, there must have been, you know, hundreds, even hundreds of thousands of books of ours made during that century, those centuries I mentioned earlier, especially in the 15th century. I once estimated that um, every fourth person um, in, in France must have owned a book of ours. And if you can then estimate the population of France in the 15th century, I mean, you do start to get, um, I mean, it's you know, kind of a guessing game, but you do start to get pretty big numbers. Okay, let's talk money then. Um, what, well, give me, give me a price range for what a complete book of ours um, today would cost. They were expensive then. Um, it was originally, it's been estimated that a Gutenberg Bible at the time cost the same as a, as a townhouse in Mainz. Um, and um, a page from a book of hours from the Duke of Burgundy from about 1480, um, where we have a contract, cost the same as re-roofing a house in an entire city block, for example. So, I mean, that's pretty abstract now in today's money terms, but in today's money terms, I would say that to get a, a decent book of hours, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, um, you should spend about sixty to eighty thousand dollars. And by decent, I mean 
um, relatively complete, not fragmentary, in good condition. That's important because these are unrestorable. You can't buy one in not good condition and repaint it. They are not restorable. So what you see is what you get. So you really do need to pay attention to the condition. And then how many pictures it has. Um, Really, a book of hours with four pictures, which is really not a standard cycle. That's a very um, sparse cycle. A, A standard cycle is eight to 12 pictures. Uh, so maybe sixty to eighty thousand for a book like that, but the record price for a book of hours is twelve million. Um, so how come there's such a big difference from sixty thousand to twelve million? It's a pretty big jump. Well, it's really all about the art. It's who painted it, how good a painter are they, and how many pictures are there. So, you know, books of hours are maybe more closely related to the art market than most um, books um, or even most manuscripts, perhaps. It's, uh, it's funny, Sandra. Somebody just emailed me about a, uh, one of the first original Harry Potters, one of the 500 that's been listed for sale for about $125,000. Well, you could buy a book of hours or a Harry Potter yeah. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, it's, um, uh, as I said, it's really all about the art and about how many pictures there are. And I like to say there are A artists and B artists and C artists. Obviously, if you had a book of hours by the Lindbergh brothers or Jan Van Eyck or, um, you know, Jean Fouquet, um, major painters these are going to be in the big big you know six nine many figure there are going to be many zeros at the end of the at the end of the price so give us an idea of uh what uh this business is like uh how, how many copies change hands each year do you do you estimate yeah i do estimate that i mean at auction i mean they are sold at auction um, at auction, through AB Books, and through the three or four specialist dealers, I, I think that about 60 copies change hands yearly. I think that that's a good estimate. Maybe a little more, a little less, um, which is a lot. I mean, 60 copies of the Gutenberg Bible don't change hands. And even, let's take a really... Um, popular early printed book like the Nuremberg Chronicle, of which there are many, many, many copies. I mean, for sure, 60 copies of the Nuremberg Chronicle don't change hands either. So I guess Um, with with 60 copies changing hands, it means that you can sometimes watch these transactions and keep an eye on the price, right? You, You must be able to study it day by day. Absolutely. But like all manuscripts, and I'm sure most of your listeners know this, but maybe not, like all um, manuscripts, pricing is um, something very specialized because you can't go to bookpricescurrent.com um, or whatever it's called. I mean, there is no, there's not going to be a publishable price guide. 
you're going to have to, but, but any buyer should ask, why is it this price instead of that price? Um, because you're going to have to compare it to books by the same artist, sold at auction, through something like Lot Finder, um, the number of illustrations. Yes, I mean, there are guidelines to pricing, but they're going to be pretty specialized for the average buyer who doesn't take advice from someone who's specialized. So you're looking at the pictures, you're trying to identify who the artist or artists are, you're looking at the condition, the binding, the materials, perhaps who's who's owned it or who it was customized for? Of course. For. Yeah. I mean, you know, Book of Hours owned by Henry VIII or Mary Queen of Scots or the Duke of Berry or the King of France. Um, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be important. So, yes, ownership would be a factor, too. Um, I did want to say, we, we did talk about the content, but I think, you know, there's something else that's important to say. You know, there is no, these, there, the pictures don't really illustrate a text. I mean, there is text, of course. Um, 89% of the text in the Book of Hours comes from the Bible. But the pictures don't illustrate any narrative that is present in the in the text so really today's users are probably looking at their books of hours much like um medieval owners did they're admiring them they're admiring the art they're admiring the pictures um you know there's a story that's being told visually and you can enjoy them um, you can enjoy them through their pictorial content alone. So give us a, a bit more of a picture about those illustrations. So that could be an illustration of a saint in a scene that's perhaps not mentioned right. in the Bible. Right. Uh, go ahead. Or it just could be everyday scenes. Would that, is that too humble? Well, I mean, it's like everyday scenes from the life of Mary. But they are kind of everyday. And remember... Many, many women, they aren't books only for women, but they often changed hands. Um, they were often given as a, a marriage present or a dowry gift. So the, the core of the pictures, like the eight principal pictures, apart from the calendar, are the life of Mary. So they all start with the Annunciation. So Mary is there, and the angel comes, and, you know, oh, Mary, look at what's going to happen to you. This is so amazing. You're going to have a child. And then you go to the next picture, and there's Mary, and she's meeting her cousin Elizabeth, and they're both pregnant, and they're saying to each other, hey, guess what? I just got the news, and Elizabeth says, me too. And so they take you through the story of the life of Mary. And so you can imagine, you know, this woman who owned the book is sort of identifying with it. But people now, too, you look at these scenes and Mary's in her bedroom and sometimes you see the little child and a medieval walker and, you know, Joseph is eating at the kitchen table. So in a way, yes, they are religious scenes, but they're portrayed in a way that is very easy to understand. They're not some complicated philosophical picture. So those are the main pictures, plus the calendar, plus then you have King David at prayer. 
um, or you have a scene in a burial yard, um, um, and then all the saints with what St. Sebastian gets shot with arrows, or um, St. Apollonia holds up a tooth. Um, they're really, they're quite charming. So you handle these books, you study them, you research them. Um, are you ever mesmerized when you're looking at those illustrations? I mean, you know, I think medieval manuscripts are the best thing there is. So, um, you know, that's all I know about. And so fortunately, I get to work with them every day. And I love my job. And I love looking at any book of ours. And yeah, I mean, everyone is mesmerizing in its own way. I like to quote Christopher de Hamel, who um, says, anyone, you've never really experienced the Middle Ages if you haven't read a book of ours in bed. Um, they're meant to be handled. handled. You, you, you mentioned bindings earlier. That's something we haven't talked about. But they were often, like, bound in velvet or wrapped in a velvet chemise. So the very unwrapping of it and opening of it would be in itself part of the looking and reading experience. Um, I think every book of ours is special, um, from, you know, um, $60,000 to $12 million, and I've handled them in that entire range. Okay. Now, if we didn't have 60000 or $12 million, but we did want to go and see examples of books of ours once COVID is finished, where would we head? Where would we go? Yeah, that's a great question and important, too. Um, so um, the principal collection, one of the principal collections in the world, I know AB Books is totally international, but one of the principal collections is the Walters Art Museum um, in Baltimore. Henry Walters loved books of ours. And um, uh, of, the, of the number of manuscripts that he bought and then, of course, gave to the Walters or founded the Walters, the majority are books of ours. I think they may have 800 books of ours. It's, whatever it is, it's the largest number of books of ours in any single collection in America. Of course, there are books of ours also at the Pierpont Morgan Library, also at the Getty Museum, both of which have exhibitions. The best, biggest collections in Europe are the Fitzwilliam um, Museum in Cambridge and the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. Um, but every, probably every museum and probably almost every college and university library has an example or two of books of ours. So they're not that difficult to, you know, see in, in, in the wild or in, in, public, in public hands, as it were. Well, that's good. Because I think we're all raring to get out and look at some museums right. and some well, I, art yeah, galleries. Don't, don't we? Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, bindings. We did mention bindings. And 
um, because they went through so many different families through the years, it's really rare to find books of ours in original bindings. Doesn't much change the price unless the binding were just extraordinary, but most of them have been rebound in later years. So, you know, looking, finding an original binding is not, shouldn't really be the priority. Finding one with pictures you like, that's, that's what you want. Pictures oh. you like. All right, that makes perfect sense. All right, Sandra, one uh, final question, uh, and which we ask everybody, and that is what book or books are you currently reading? Well, I just finished reading two books which I really liked a lot. Um, and I hadn't read a book by either author before. The first one is called The Memory Police, um, a novel by a Japanese author about sort of a dystopian novel, kind of a cross between 1984 and Fahrenheit 451. And the second book is a really lovely coming-of-age book um, by that's just recently translated into English um, by Magda Zabo called um, what is it called? it's called is it called Amelia um, oops now I just forgot its name that's okay we can um, look it out but yeah uh, Magda Zabo um, so that's what I'm reading or just read lovely it uh Sounds, they both sound very good. Uh, all right, that's all we have time for this week. Many thanks to Sandra Heinemann, the owner of Les Illumineurs, for joining us. Well, thank you, Richard. What fun. I could talk for hours and hours to you about books of hours. Um, so I'm greatly enjoyed our conversation. Well, I'm sure we will talk again. We can find some other fascinating subject from the Middle Ages to, uh, to help people learn and understand about what books were doing at those times. Yeah, great, great, with pleasure. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Hope you all enjoyed the show, and we'll see you all again soon.